insight on conflict and choose, for example, Nepal, you would see 13 dots all over Nepal. And if you clicked on one of those, down would scroll the details of one particular civil society organization in that country. Who they are, what they do, how cost-effective they are, and what they have achieved. So we're working through conflict area by conflict area uh, until we've mapped all the conflict areas in the world. Out of this has come some understanding of the cycle of violence, which may appear on the screen any moment. But since it hasn't, I'm going to paint it for you visually. If you imagine a cycle of violence as starting with an atrocity, and out of the atrocity, the immediate reaction is terror and shock. After that comes fear, and after that comes grief. Immediately followed, when people are, as it were, through the grief stage, is the feeling of humiliation. And humiliation is one of the biggest drivers of the cycle of violence. After humiliation comes anger, and if nothing is done, anger hardens into bitterness. Bitterness, I can, you don't need to write this, I can easily email it to you, it's been published in several books and so on. Uh, anger hardens into bitterness, bitterness into the need for revenge, and then retaliation, and another atrocity, and the cycle goes round again. Now, as we've been able to map it, there are, to my way of thinking, four different ways you can look at or slice the way you can stop the cycle of violence going round again. And in all cases, you have to intervene before anger turns to bitterness, turns to revenge. Uh, the first level is the level of providing physical security. And by that, we mean enabling people to at least feel they're not going to be attacked in their bed tomorrow night. So it means bringing in UNPKF forces. It means uh, enabling people to um, form some kind of a ceasefire or a truce agreement. It means, uh, in some cases, protective accompaniment for people who would be personally targeted. Uh, all the means that have been invented both uh, at government level and at the level of civil society to enable people to be physically safer. The next way you can look at it is providing political safety. Now by political safety we mean an agreement of something, which is often accompanied by guarantees so that people know that there will not only be a ceasefire, but that ceasefire will stick and will hold. At the level of political security, also, you need policing, you need rule of law, you need a legal system that works, uh, you need free elections and free press and the right to demonstrate. So all these elements of political security. And then we move to a level which is... Um, of me, of, to me, of increasing in, interest, and that's the level of psychological security. And this is where civil society 
as conceived as what you might call a bottom-up, a grassroots approach, as opposed to a top-down or official intervention. This is where civil society comes into its own. This is where a Truth and Reconciliation Commission is vastly important because it attends <coughs> to the level of grief, anger, hatred, humiliation, and so forth. Uh, it's where trauma counselling becomes effective. It's where um, bridge building of all the different kinds that we witness and have witnessed in the Balkans, in, now in the Congo. Um, it's where the um, liberation and repatriation of child soldiers becomes essential and the long and immensely difficult business of enabling child soldiers to recover and reintegrate into society. Um, it's where the work on the trauma children have suffered in war becomes vastly important. Otherwise, the wounds of war are simply passed on to the next generation. And then the final level at which we are beginning to investigate how you interrupt the cycle of violence is at the spiritual level. Now, this is where um, the kind of example that springs to mind, and this is where we come into the, the level of culture as well, the kind of example that springs to mind is German people gathering, as they did on the 24th of April in Berlin, in their thousands, to literally meditate on what still needs to be done to heal the wounds since the Second World War. Those same German people then journeyed to Israel in January of this year and spoke one-to-one -one with Israelis whose parents had been in the camps on a one-to-one -one basis. And this formed friendships which were absolutely dynamic because of that one-to-one -one contact. And the question they were asking each other is, what still, still needs to be healed? So that's the kind of level of peace building at a spiritual level that uh, I see as dynamic. Other people would, uh, for example, think of meditations, vigils, um, and the work of interfaith communication, such as being discussed in the last session here. So now I want to, to move, really, to make a shift towards how the arts comes into this whole question of interrupting the cycle of violence or healing the wounds of war. And here I'd like to talk about the ripple effect that can happen with the kind of work that people in this room are doing by, for example, writing books um, or doing academic studies. In um, 2006, I did a study on what had happened in Fallujah in Iraq between 2003 and 2005. And just to recap quickly, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself from last night, but when the invasion took place and the troops came to Fallujah in 2003, they were welcomed with open arms. Fallujah was a Sunni town, but they were not supporting Saddam Hussein. There were, at the most, between 20 and 50 people who could be described as insurgents in Fallujah. Two years later, there were 25,000. What happened between those two years was six cardinal 
um, mistakes of judgment on behalf on the part of the strateg military strategists. We um, analysed six milestones in that period, that two-year period, when there were at each at, at each milestone there were at least five options that could have been chosen in terms of working with the local imams, talking to community leaders, working out a strategy with local people so that anybody who might be an insurgent would be isolated, um, bridge building between religious communities in the town. None of these was attempted. Um, with the result that, um, as we know, there was a murder of four contractors and that sparked a huge uh, upsurge in violence. There were two sieges of Fallujah. In the final one, the most incredible atrocities were perpetrated, including the use of white phosphorus and the shooting of um, children holding white flags. Um, so th that town became a mecca for insurgency, having been a a a completely the opposite. Um, this a uh, case study of what happened in Fallujah uh, was, was published and then was picked up by a dramatist who wrote a play based on it, which was then put on, on stage, I say on stage, in a vast warehouse in London, in Brick Lane, um, the Truman Brewery. And that was taken over for six weeks by literally a war zone. They turned this London warehouse into a war zone where the audience uh, of 400 strong was swept through what happened in Fallujah. So you had ambulances driving in, you had bombing uh, actually going on. People were, in the audience were actually terrified. They said it was their nearest experience of being in a war. Um, and the, the play was very highly written up. Second example I'd like to give you is uh, South Africa. Uh, in 1975, um, when it was completely illegal for black people and white people to not only appear on stage together, but to sit in the audience together in the theatre. And my husband and I were approached by a, a group of actors who had no home. They were performing their plays, black actors and white actors, in people's garages secretly. <laughs> and they came to us and they said, we're desperate for a, a theatre. And they'd located the fruit market in downtown Johannesburg, which was up for sale. And because it was legally uh, denoted as a, in a part of the group areas that where all races could mix because it was a market, and the authorities hadn't got around to cancelling that, we were able to, we had to decide within two days to buy it, raise all the money to transform it into a theatre, and get it opened before the authorities caught up with us. And we did it in five months. Um, we had to raise um, what would be the equivalent now, about £2 million, um, and get the whole show on the road. With the result that the Market Theatre in Johannesburg started putting on Athel Fugard's plays and plays by black playwrights with black and white actors and totally mixed audience. And those plays then started to come to the National in London, were very highly written up. You may remember Sizwe Banzi's Dead and The Island, all those incredible plays, um, which brought the whole issue of apartheid right onto the London stage, really for the first time. 
Um, and the market theatre is still going strong and still training young actors. And so the third example I'd like to give you, and I'm nearly done, um, is um, concerning uh, a book that myself and a colleague called Gabrielle Rifkind wrote, published by Ryder, called Making Terrorism History. And that, that's the one that has this diagram in it, one of the ones. And um, as a result of that, we were contacted by Max Stafford-Prock, who had um, been running the Royal Court Theatre in Sloan Square for many years. And Max said, I want to do a verbatim play on this. So he got me to bring to his studios in uh, Finsbury Park um, terrorists, the, the Brighton bomber I brought, the daughter of the man he killed, uh, who were that by then speaking to each other. We brought Momolam so that he could interview her about her political role in Northern Ireland. We brought people who'd been involved in insurgency. We brought intelligence chiefs. We brought the police. We brought um, other politicians. Norman Tebbett who'd been injured in the Brighton bombing and so on. And the actors and the director took testimony from all these people who've been involved in one aspect or another of terrorism and put together a play called Talking to Terrorists. Mm -hmm. I don't, you went there? Um, well, no, I saw it in Oxford, I believe. Yeah. Well, um, at that time, the whole idea of talking to terrorists was taboo. Um, <laughs> and I'm told that it helped to move the acceptability of talking to people who are political activists or insurgents to make it to begin to make it acceptable, um, and so these are just three little examples of how working from political science through to the arts, you come back to a political effect. And I think I should stop. Thank you, thank you very much, Stella. That's very much. Uh drawing for us exactly those connections we hope to explore later. I'm doing a quick time check, and I realize that because of tec technical problems, we started late. Ideally, what I'd like to request our panelists, if we can try and see if we can, it's now 3.36, if by 4 we can open it up to the audience, because I have a feeling that because people need to leave early, we need to be in the auditorium by 4.30 so we can have a dialogue with you. Um, so what, what is our situation here? Alex, should we get, still give it a chance and, and listen? I, I hope that the order just made beautiful sense to go from Scylla to you and then to the case study, so to speak, on the ground. Yes, I think but, I'm, I'm quite happy to go low tech, but I think um, I prefer if we stopped all this and didn't uh, have the And didn't have the distraction. Okay, okay, let's do that. So we're losing out on some images now, but... Uh, your, you will be, uh, in your prose, able to create them for us. Uh, we'll try a collective thought experiment in this one. <laughs> Picasso said that art is not meant to decorate the walls of apartments. Art is an offensive and defensive weapon against the enemy. I want to explore with you what art can do, uh, what is the power of art, 
arts force for good, if you like. I guess we've heard rather too much of uh, things being a force for good of late from Tony Blair and others, but nevertheless I want to try on you the proposition that art can indeed be a force for good and a powerful one in the context in which we are interested. One, moreover, whose power we have hardly yet begun to uh, capture, analyse and harness. I want to ground uh, what I want to say, if you like, in uh, two bits of uh, real and imaginary land. Uh, I originally titled this little intervention, Art and the Cultural Terrain. The cultural terrain is an expression used by General David Petraeus, as some of you will know, who has always been, uh, already been mentioned by, very appropriately, by Scylla. Uh, in other words, um, this is uh, a military term of art as well as a cultural term of art. And it goes to the question of... Forgive me, can I just check that we have... Oh, good. The all-important statistic. Okay. Uh, a moment of panic. Uh, now over. Um, the cultural terrain goes to the question of the importance of cultural understanding in prosecuting a counterinsurgency, uh, in prosecuting various low and occasionally very high intensity operations. It goes to the question then of particular bits of ground, one might say Fallujah, but also, as it were, an imaginary space, a cultural space. So keep in mind the cultural terrain. Uh, and if we want practical um, suggestions to come out of these sessions, then one might suggest that uh, in military headquarters, and perhaps with military formations on the ground, one needs not only lawyers, to advise on the legality. One needs not only anthropologists who have now been uh, co-opted by Petraeus and his ilk. One needs perhaps cultural commissars, to use an expression uh, that has a rather old-fashioned and perhaps for some of you a sinister flavour, uh, but uh, perhaps you, you, you take my point. Maybe we can come back to that. The cultural terrain goes along with another piece of ground that is extremely difficult to um, negotiate. It is the moral high ground. Because he who holds, or she who holds the moral high ground will determine the outcome of the peace building. The moral high ground is an extremely difficult bit of ground first to locate, and then to occupy. But it is, in fact, the ultimate goal. It is not the enemy's capital city. It is not the opposing army. It is, in fact, the moral high ground. Art can help us, I believe, to identify that ground, to conceptualise it, if you will, to visualise it, to concretize it, to make it real. 
Now, the thought experiment is this. You need to hold in your mind two examples of uh, art and um, in its application in war and peace, in uh, conflict and peace building. One is Picasso's Guernica. I think you can all conjure up some body parts of uh, Picasso's Guernica. And the other is art made of the iconic image of the Iraq war, the image that will surely define the war for generations to come, the man on the box, the hooded man on the box, rigged as if to be electrocuted. I expect you can all conjure that image too as I speak. That, you may say, is not art, though it has, by the by, been exhibited in art galleries. The original photograph, I mean. But what I mean is the replication of images drawn from that image. There has been a fantastic proliferation of imagery based on the hooded man on the box. Murals, posters, art, design, paintings, sculpture, in East and West. That is the defining image of the world. So, keeping this in mind, what then can art do in the realm of war and peace and peace building? Well, here are some propositions for you, and I shall simply throw out a number uh, uh, in the hope of stimulating discussion. Art can crystallise, the image can crystallise, or if you prefer, define. The man on the box is a perfect, if dismaying, illustration of this. It defines the utter loss of moral authority by the Anglo-American forces in their prosecution of the absurdly named War on Terror. A war which is, in practice, lost, in fact, because, precisely because, we have lost the moral high ground. Art then mobilizes the replication of the image of the man on the box has served as a kind of recruiting sergeant on its own for the forces against us. Art protests, a very important function. Protest is a necessary part of peace building, I suggest. Art offends. The giving and taking of offence is an underestimated part of peace, the process of peace building, I believe. It is necessary sometimes to cause offence. It's absolutely necessary sometimes to realise what is offensive and what is not. The image the kind of image I'm talking about here helps to do that, helps to educate us in that, 
helps, if you like, in the raising of consciousness, as Professor Galton put it so brilliantly this morning. Art unsettles. Art descends. Peace building is also about dissent and critique. Art agitates. The artist as agitator is an honourable profession and perhaps a necessary part also of the culture of peace building. Art arouses. Don't misunderstand me. I mean to emphasise the affective domain, the heart as well as the mind. Art speaks heart. Peace cannot be built with the mind alone. If it does not take account of the affective domain, of emotions, of, if you will, arousal, it is nothing. Silla has twice emphasized feelings of shame and humiliation in this context. The images and the replication of the image of the man on the box are images of humiliation. And one of the very interesting and elusive aspects of torture, which is what we're talking about here, is its reversible quality. Torture is deliberately intended to humiliate the person who is being tortured. That's what torture is all about. And yet, the reversal is that the torturer is humiliated in his turn, which is to say, we are humiliated by Abu Ghraib, just as they are humiliated by Abu Ghraib, if I can use that stark binary to make the point. Art haunts. We will all be haunted by the shame of Abu Ghraib and its images and the way in which the war on terror has been prosecuted until there is some means of expiating that shame. What are those means? It has, they have to do with a much more profound cultural understanding. They have to do with some... I think judicial means also, inquiries, uh, holding to responsibility, acknowledgement of responsibility, consequences for those responsible, not merely corporals and sergeants, but members of administrations, not merely middle people, but high. All of this can be, shall I say, graphically demonstrated by art. Art, in a word, exercises the moral imagination. We lack exercises for the moral imagination. We have too many gyms and not enough uh, moral exercises. <laughs> We need the uh, moral equivalent of the workout. 
that's what a Guernica does. It is even what images of replications of Abu Ghraib do. My uh, favorite encapsulation of what I've been trying to indicate to you here is from the poet Seamus Heaney. He says, the imaginative transformation of human life is the means by which we can most truly grasp and understand it. I will. The imaginative transformation of human life is the means by which we can most truly grasp and understand it. The imaginative translation, transformation. And it's the grasping and understanding that is the sine qua non of peace building. The critical realm for that can be, as it were, accessed through art. Thank you. I think our silence is probably a tribute to <laughs> And I'll just mention, which I didn't before, that when um, Alex finishes his fellowship at St. Anthony's, he'll be returning to Nottingham, where he's a professor at the University of Nottingham, where you'll find some of his very interesting techniques in his courses, which are as spellbinding as the last 15 minutes were. This is going to be tough because you're two speakers, and every day of your lives would make for a... a long lecture. So I don't know how you're going to quite in the next 10 to 15 minutes give us a flavor of it. What we are going to do for sure is try the next time you're both in Oxford to organize a whole session around your work and how it came about. But now over to you to try and give us a, a flavor for it. Okay, thank you so much. We'll really try to, to say a few words and give you a taste of what we do and try to focus on the, the art and cultural aspects of what we do in law. And then we can elaborate through the questions and answers. And you have our email addresses, I think, at the, at the brochure, so we can elaborate through the email as well. So first of all, thank you for, especially to Sila, for the opportunity to speak here today and to the kind introduction. Rama, I have only one correction. Ruth is not only my wife and an Israeli diplomat and the student at St. Anthony, she's also the co-director of the Law Community oh, Foundation. Oh, I didn't mention. Okay, that's why, that's why Ruth is sitting next to me today. So I'll, I'll say a few words about, about Law, the city, why Law, and what is the Law Community Foundation, and then Ruth will focus on the cultural aspects of, uh, of what we do. So, first of all, why Law? Uh, I guess... As many of you are interested in peace building in the Middle East, both of us are also interested in peace building in the Middle East. And uh, as Phil said in the previous session about Bradford, in many, many cases, the municipal level or the city level is neglected when you discuss uh, peace building in the Middle East. Usually, you talk about the regional levels or the national levels, or you say we cannot cause any any progress on this level, so we'll stick with the people to people, take 10 Israelis and 10 Palestinians and try to do something with them. And usually the level of the middle is usually neglected. So we thought we cannot do much, at least not now, on the regional level or the national level. Maybe we'll provide the Middle East with a success story. 
will take an entire city of 75,000 people that is mixed, Jews and Jewish and Palestinians living together, and will give the Middle East the success story that is not too small in order to, to serve as a success story for the entire Middle East, and not too big in order to be achievable. 75,000 people city is still manageable. So this is one reason why, why we picked Lod. The second reason why we picked Lod is uh, the history of Lod. Uh, I'm talking about both the general history and especially what happened in Lod in 1948, exactly 62 years ago, to the date. <laughs> First of all, talking about ancient history, uh, not many people know, but Lod is the most ancient city in Israel. It has a consecutive history of 8,000 years. And it's very, very sacred to both the Jews and the Muslims and the Christians. We are here in England, so I'll just elaborate on the, on the English angle of, uh, of Lord. Uh, St. George, the, the patron saint of England, the, the dragon slayer, was born in Lord and is still buried in Lord. So this is the, the English aspect of the, the glamorous history of uh, more recent, in 1948, I guess most of you know that uh, one of the, of the roots of the conflict in the Middle East lies in what happened in the land of Israel or Palestine in 1948. The Jews call it the liberation or the war of independence, and the Palestinians call, call it the Nakba, the disaster. And actually, it's today, May 15, the day that Palestinians all over the world mark the Nakba. I don't know if it was intentional, but it's today. <laughs> Uh, the biggest symbol of the Palestinian Nakba is Lod. Maybe you don't know it because Lod is the Hebrew name of the city. In Latin it's Lida, and in mm -hmm. Arabic it's Lid. If you just Google the Palestinian Nakba on the internet, most of the footage, and we are talking about R today, most of the footage that you'll get is from Lid. In 1948, in July 1948, about 50,000 Palestinians fled on foot from Lid, which is just at the center of the land of Israel, to Jordan and the West Bank. And we thought that a symbol like Lord, a symbol for the Nakba or the Jewish liberation can turn into a symbol for peace building and coexistence between the Jews and the Palestinians. Um, the third reason why Lord is uh, what's going on in Lord at present times. Um, Lord is actually nowadays a microcosm of the entire Middle East. You have, I, I usually call them the tribes, you have ten different tribes, ethnic tribes, that are actually samples of everything that is going on in the Middle East. You have uh, Palestinians, you have Bedouins, you have Christian Palestinians, you have uh, Muslim Palestinians, you have people that are urban, people that are Bedouins, nomads that came to Lod, and you have different kinds of Jews. You have the ultra-Orthodox that maybe some of you know from, from England, and you have secular, you have people that came from Ethiopia, Russia, Georgia, even India, and they all live in Lod. So it's a kind of a laboratory nowadays of all the different cultures and ethnicities that are in the Middle East. So these are the three reasons why Lod. What do we do then? So basically we do two things. One is we try to develop the city. Uh, but we're not only trying to develop the city, but we, you mentioned imagination. <laughs> so uh, we imagine 
the Lord, who is currently a very, very poor place, very well known in Israel for the poverty and the crime and the drug dealings and the illegal neighborhoods that are in this very, very poor place, using our imagination, uh, we want to turn it into, into a role model, into a role model of partnerships between different kinds of Jews and different kinds of Palestinians, shaping their common future together. But not only Jews and Palestinians working together, but a model of partnership between different levels of stakeholders, because we think it's not enough to bring the Jews and the Palestinians, both of them poor, living in Israel, but it's very, very essential to bring the local leadership together with international leading professional figures and the Israeli government, and international organizations. Uh, so this is what we're trying to do, developing while really doing it in a collaborative manner of, uh, of partnership. I have much more else and other things to say, but I want to leave the floor for you to tell you a little bit more about the cultural aspect. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Alex, you said something that I cannot agree with more. Peace cannot be made with a mind alone, and we definitely agree with that. In fact, um, we feel that using soft power, or what we call cultural interchanges and exchanges, is something that um, is possibly one of the only things that can open up the heart um, alongside the mind. We do believe in bottom-up approach, but also top-down. And as Silla, you mentioned, a combination of the two. Um, and that is why, as Aviv mentioned, we uh, do speak to the government and on the strategic level uh, speak to stakeholders that are what we call hard power. But we do speak to the people, the representatives of the different communities, um, in order to give them a sense of ownership and a sense of participation in the process via culture, for example, that's one of the things that we do in order to uh, move forward certain processes. And I'd really like to, as we said, just give a taste of what it is that we do, for instance. So first of all, we strongly believe that music speaks to just about everybody. And what we try to do is to map all the talents that are in the city um, whether the Arab Muslims, Arab Christians, Jews, etc., and that have a talent and an affiliation to music, and to bring them around those stakeholders in the field of music in a, in a round table. And basically to bring key people from the national level. So we brought in one of the most famous singers in Israel, David Broser, who's also very known for his activities vis-a-vis -vis peace and also one of the managers of the leading music school in Israel, uh, Amikam Kimmelman, in order to uh, liaise between the professional level and those stakeholders. In other words, enhancing each one of them separately and then thinking of common ways with everybody, how one can combine the talents in order to raise the city from where it's at now to a more interesting level, let's say, in that particular field. So that is in the field of music. One of the things that we came up with with those stakeholders is that once every season we're going to have a sort of a musical street festival in a city which is more known for its drugs and crime. 
something that would open up the streets of Lod, not only to those who are interested in the former, but rather in music, in creativity, in imagery, in imagination. So that's perhaps in the field of music. One of the things that we did in our launching event last year was very much what you spoke of in terms of the imagery and a picture perhaps depicting um, sometimes more than a thousand words. And there was a competition, a photography competition, open to all of the inhabitants and the inhabitants alone and how they perceive Lod. Because, as we already said, to some it's the very epitome of the Nakba, to others the very essence of independence. And the photographs that came out of that um, initiative were absolutely amazing. And very, very um, intriguing was the way in which one of the Arab youths, a Muslim Arab youth, won the competition, and he was... Um, uh, brought to the stage by the mayor of the city and honored and it was something that was very touching and very transcending in a sense the differences of the communities and the differences in religions. I think perhaps one more example and then if you wish we could elaborate later is the issue of interfaith. We were here in the last session um, in a city like Claude where you have Bedouin Muslims and um, Muslims that were there before 1948, a Christian community, a Jewish community that is extraordinarily varied, some from Ethiopia, others from Russia, and the former USSR, and so on and so forth. You have a myriad of religions. And one of the things that we thought made, I would say, as much as possible, epitomize the heart or the imagery or the imagination of people is to have a women's group uh, from the different religions that would first and foremost really integrate in terms of getting to know one another's culture and religion because finally enough 62 years of so-called coexistence and people really living together meeting one another in the market or in the in the streets still did not allow for a true understanding or a true knowledge of what the other's culture, religion, background and traditions are. And that is the first purpose of this woman's interfaith group. We have one of the most famous um, interfaith experts that was actually recently honored by the Queen, um, a Jewish rabbi who is very well known for participating and contributing to a lot of interfaith dialogues around the world. Um, very often with Muslim uh, religious leaders, but he's the one who is professionally sort of giving us advice on how to go about leading this group. The second purpose of the group is more uh, practical on-the-ground experience of how to take perhaps the families and the communities drawn by these women in order to uh, work for the benefit of all of the communities together in the city. So it's a more practical and on-the-ground agenda and not just a dialogue. So that's really, in a nutshell, several examples of what we do culture-wise and faith-wise. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you could see how it's such... such a rich panel and such experience we could easily have a conference for a few days but I know there's a lot of experience out there as well and we'd love to now leap into uh, getting from you some comments, experiences and questions to our very learned 
our panelists. We start here, as usual, just introduce yourselves and over to Serene, I'm sure. Yeah, please. Simon King. Uh, my question was originally cast in response to Dr. Elwood, and then it had to be rephrased. <laughs> and now I'd like to rephrase it to the blossom of pear. Um, it says art, but I suggest that the area of art that really matters here is drama, because whereas when I can, can stir something inside you, uh, drama actually takes you a very considerable journey. Uh, and Macbeth gets to you in a way which a picture or a photograph can't really do. And it's interesting that uh, Dr. Elworthy immediately selected drama as the way in which events in Fallujah were represented and comprehensible. My question to the Gwasmans is, is this. Drama exists across almost all world culture, all world which was affected by Greco-Roman literature, um, the Japanese, the Chinese, particularly the Indians. There have been groups of people where drama has been outlawed, the Puritans, here. And today, as I understand it, drama is not allowed by Islamist hardliners. There may also be some Jewish hardliners that have the same sort of reservation about drama. And my question is, what sort of cultural outreach is possible to a community of people who deny the legitimacy of the principal mode of cultural outreach? Hmm. Should we go with, okay, maybe we go with that, but then after I'll start grouping together a couple of questions, yeah. Um, ahead, yeah, I, I just want to really answer you very unparticularly, if I may, because we don't have drama circles in Lord. Um, I, and I can't speak for the Islamist hardliners. I can tell you that in Judaism, at least, um, the prohibition is of women performing in front of men. So that would be something that would, may be seen as difficult. For example, women singers in religious circles, of course, would not be able to sing in front of an audience that is perhaps mixed. Uh, regarding Islamist hardliners, at least from the three years that I spent in Egypt, um, in some circles it was not allowed. Whether that is uh, a given in Islam or not, I'm not an expert. But uh, it would be an excellent undertaking if we could try and promote or encourage, at a later stage, uh, dramatic circles trying to express what the different people feel over and above the expression in exhibitions, in music, and so on and so forth. Because you're right, I agree with you, it's very much an issue of um, perhaps the most um, pure expression. Women couldn't be playing on the stage in Shakespeare's time, you know, that's well, there you go. not that far ago. <laughs> That's true. I, I just want, I, I realize I went back and I thought that everywhere we've used art in the singular. Yes. What I should say is it is the art in the broader sense. And while you say that about culture, about drama, just as you said, music, uh, for others, visual art, and I know there's a visual artist sitting over here in the room as well who works on this issue. And what I've found, because for the last 10 years, I was struck by this in my work on conflict when I was in Somalia, very Muslim country. But there what they did is they took their oral poetry and made that, that was what they could do. And what I found is in every society, 
the arts that are the most relevant to that particular culture is the one that's used and transformed to, be, to do all. I was looking at, you know, my list would read a lot like yours, to do all of those things, many often at the same time. So the manifestations will vary, yeah? And sometimes, and, and I think, Alex, you wanted to jump into that. So it's, it was meant to be the arts, and it isn't just limited to theatre because it's very different. Sometimes it's, it's sculpture. Um, over to you, Alex. Uh, just a couple of quick comments. I- I'm not sure it's very profitable to try to establish a kind of hierarchy of uh, modes of cultural outreach. Um, we could spend a long time, I would have thought, on which of the arts it has uh, exercises more profound experience. Uh, but we don't want to do that now, I think. Uh, a comment about music prompted by what uh, Ruth was saying. Um, surely uh, a project like the West Eastern Divan mm-hmm. Orchestra, mm-hmm. Uh, the Baron Boehm Said uh, project, ha- was deliberately designed precisely to test some of what you're talking about. In other words, to test the bounds of cultural acceptability uh, among the two communities, broadly speaking, uh, represented in the in that orchestra, uh, and they do that by uh, testing where they play, what they play, how they play, and so on. Um, that it seems to me is could be defined as a project for peace building. Uh, Barenboim is very articulate. One might say hyper articulate, as many of you will know. And he sometimes accepts some of that characterization, and sometimes he doesn't. He's sometimes inclined to say, well, it's an orchestra, it's about music. Mm. But of course, it's an intensely political project, and designedly so. And what it's intensely political about, surely, is boundary crossing of various sorts with a view to something like peace building. Thank you. Sir, any thoughts on that, or should we wait for the next? Yeah, Sir Thank you. Um, I'll be explaining. Um, conceptually, I agree with you. Not because I'm, I'm a beneficiary of, uh, of my parents, both artists. Um, uh, my mother was seeing my father was a musician, and uh, they um, crossed the boundaries of the discipline, and I have been interested. Conceptually, yes. But in deep divided societies like uh, South Africa or, or the Palestinian situation, or even Sri Lanka, where artists themselves are politicized. Are politicized. politicized. Artists themselves are politicized, and they use their art, art to, to propagate the state or the non-state ideology. For instance, in Sri Lanka, we know these monks writing war songs. Those songs were recorded. But while the battle was going on, and played to the truth, saying this is a great land, you know, mothers will bless you, the milk from the mother's breast will flow for the nation, blah, blah, blah. On the other side, we have the LTT producing music again. You know, saying that this is the lost culture, we've got to go back, look at the, the fire of the tigers blowing across the globe, there are all kinds of things. My question to you is, in a deep rivalry situation like that, how do we spark the bridge? Number one, should we wait until it automatically takes place that there is a common critical balance build between two? Or 
is it, in your case, like, is it the avatar ideology, meaning an outsider coming and telling outsider? <laughs> well, if, if, if you're asking me, uh, our first premise from all our experience with um, peace building is that it's the local people who know what needs to be done first. Because, and, and these are people who are selected for their wisdom and their reliability and their effectiveness. Um, so the idea of people coming in from outside and telling them what to do is counterproductive. Uh, often it does need somebody coming from outside to mediate or negotiate between political leaders because anybody local would be perceived as parti pris of mm. having sides. But it's the combination, as we've said before, mm. top okay. down and bottom up. Now, uh, as far as um, uh, the, the other part of your question was to do with. Yes, I have, should we wait for a critical man? That's right. Uh, Commander of critical man's growth indigenously? And how are the conditions those uh, that growth? I believe definitely not. Okay, okay. Not to wait for a critical mass because it's the act of bridge building which often starts the process. For example, um, Croatian women going and sitting in the house of, uh, of um, Bosnian Muslims who were being ethnically cleansed uh, and refusing to budge when people came at night to, to push them out. And vice versa. Both communities were able to do that. Uh, particularly around the area of Zagreb. So that, that uh, is bridge building with your life, if you like. Um, so you go and sit in somebody else's house to stop them being pushed out. Um, but that's the, the, the first move, the most courageous move that needs to be made. And I believe that has to happen long before this critical mass. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, yeah, let you speak, but I also have a, a, an observation on that. But please, go for yes, it. I, I, yes, I have Just introduce yourself, if you don't mind. Puri, uh, from London, uh, a group of women for justice and peace. And yes, there have been instances where uh, artists uh, oppose to peace meetings, peace demonstrations. Yes, there are. But a few months ago, there was a Sinhalese artist who had a, a line of theatre uh, exhibition on the barbed wire camps and starved children and all that. Yeah. Recently, yeah. he had a uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. uh, Two years ago, one teledrama uh, incorporating Sinhalese and Tamils, a, a series of uh, these things. But when it inc started to incorporate Tamils, it was uh, taken off the, uh, this thing. So, yeah. Thank you. And my answer to that would be. We don't have to wait for a critical mass because it's happening. But just like with peace work, what we know is that the extremists, we think there's so many of them because they just shout louder. And it's the same, the artists are there, you're talking about the Croatian women. In the height of the war, the, the, uh, in the former Yugoslavia, the Serbs and the Croats uh, and the Bosnians would meet underground at night. They'd put on their guns and do jazz yeah, in darkened rooms. Sun would rise, they would go back up and fight each other. And I've met people who've done this, but this is over and over again. And each act is building the bridge and creating the critical mass. And I have to I see I have a very strong opinion that it's the endogenous, 
in Sri Lanka, it's all over the place. But people are, are humming the, the extremist songs because the, those are the ones which are heard or the, 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 the songs from Rwanda, the hate songs. But there are many, many more of the peace uh, works. Please, over to you, Eddie. Yeah. Yeah, well, my name is Eddie. I, uh, I run the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Conflict Issues. Uh, but I'm also uh, an artist. I'm Ha ha! Scriptwriter, and um, one of the, the the things I'd like to add to your list, which is extremely useful, is that art can uh, deconstruct, reconstruct reality. One of the uh, things that that I've noticed talking to politicians is how many of them, and I'm not being hypocritical, uh, many of them lack imagination, and. Um, uh, in fact, many people tend to fix on very particular interpretations of reality, um, particular solutions to things. One of the things I've learned in my uh, craft is the art of rewriting. That is, uh, that, that scripts are they're rewritten. And you realize that the, the reality that you're creating can be recreated in many different forms. And liberating people um, from the fixations that they have particular solutions, particular interpretations of reality, I think is something that is a very powerful aspect of art that could be um, stressed. Beautiful. Thank you very much for that, Eddie. Uh, Silla, you had some thoughts and then... Add- well, uh, knowing Eddie to be a scriptwriter um, and a very good one, uh, I'd just like to add that the Search for Common Ground organisation, uh, which is now worldwide and extremely successful... <coughs> I think has 47 soap operas working in conflict areas and their success rate has been amazing, particularly amongst young people where they've regularly achieved 87% uh, viewership, consistent viewership of their soap operas showing children how people from different, uh, very different political views can live together in the same house Often the house speaks to the children. Um, and so by using plot beautifully, especially for, for younger people, they're able to educate people into the fact that coexistence and cooperation is possible across huge gulfs. Thanks. Please. Uh, question. Yeah, just repeat your name. I know you, you introduced yourself in the plenary. Nancy, she'll say. I just have a question. I very much agree um, with how you spoke about music, um, uh, using music for peace building. Um, and myself, uh, my sister and I, we tend to sing and dance to bring awareness about the crisis in the Congo. Um, but what I find is that um, I feel like art should be used to encourage other people to do the same. And I find that a lot of the times you sing, you dance, mm-hmm. you get an audience, they listen, and then they might not upon it because they're kind of reluctant because they feel that, um, like uh, you mentioned about um, protests, a lot of mm-hmm. people feel like protests, um, they feel that they can encourage like, government or officials to be reluctant to help in the peace process. So how, how do you mm-hmm. deal with that? I think that what we're trying to do, at least uh, with music and dance, uh, dance a little bit less but music more in Lod is to first and foremost empower people who live in the city. 
and to empower them, whether they're Christian, whether they're Jewish, whether they're Arab Muslim, or whatever their background is. And to do it in a, in a sense, to do it together and to impact other people. Not necessarily to impact them in a very specific political way, but in an indirect political or social way. For instance, to make this city, which is known um, really by most Israelis as, as we said, uh, the backyard or a very poor, very crime-ridden place that you just go past when you try to reach the airport or come from the airport, to come to the city and see something that is done by the people in the city. It's not imported into it, but rather the empowerment and the ownership over this kind of creativity, something that is, that is what we are trying to put emphasis on. Um, and we find, at least until now, and we um, still in the beginning stages, but then when people sing together, when they, as, as you mentioned, I mean, it's an amazing example what you said, or when they um, play music together and there's an orchestra which is extraordinarily touching in the city of youths, Arab and Jewish, um, that play absolutely beautifully when <coughs> something like that, when you see it, when you hear it, it awakens something in you. Whether you are conservative mm. or whether you are politically um, against uh, any kind of coexistence. So. May I? Yes, please. And, and Nancy, meanwhile, I want to say what you're doing is very important. And if you, even if you feel discouraged sometimes, just know that even if they don't jump up there and say, oh my God, isn't this amazing, I'm going to do the same, you're probably achieving exactly what uh, Ruth is talking about. But please, Alex. Just reverting for a moment to the West Eastern Divine Orchestra, the Baron Boyne project, uh, which can be criticised, I suppose, for being top-down. Mm -hmm. um, nevertheless, is not one single orchestral group. People join the orchestra for a certain period, and then they leave, and then more join. In other words, there are a number of cadres of West Eastern Divan Orchestra members who then return to their communities and may well pursue a somewhat similar mini Divan model. So I'm speaking to uh, the, the question, the, the, the very important question, of how this can be replicated or disseminated. Uh, and it seems to me that even uh, such an elite model as the West Eastern Divine Orchestra can be seen as a kind of um, uh, receiving station uh, and then, uh, if you like, a recycling station as, of, as, as those people who had that experience then return to their own communities and in some fashion make use of it there. Thank yes. you. Um, any more? Yvonne, I was hoping you would speak up from your... Okay. Um, yes. Right, well, I'm going to say lots of things. I'm one of the First of all, I'd like to say I'm really um, behind these community projects in theatre. I have actually worked with Theatre Complicite and come across William Kentridge, who trained at the same um, Parisian school. And I'm a real fan of their project. I think it's great. 
I suppose as a practicing artist, the only, I would have reservations about any um, generalised theorisation of art mm -hmm. in a sort of militaristic guard. Mm -hmm. um, because the postmodernists, um, like the modernists like Picasso, would talk about art as an offensive weapon because he would, his mode is looking at art as reflecting society. Contemporary postmodernist, contemporary practice tend to use other models, and very much part of the way artists operate is showing through in which they present things. So, but it, you have to start questioning an art form that practices now using a militaristic mode, because we're actually trying to encourage peace. And if the way we inform our practice is through militaristic modes, that's actually against what we're trying to do as artists. So I think there's, although there are artists that work through directly political fields, and here I'm talking about the visual arts, which don't have the same dynamics, the community dynamics as theatre, for example. Um, in the visual arts, certainly, uh, there's still an area of the field which is very um, politicised, but there's also a massive part of the field that isn't so well theorised, that responds in quieter ways, in more performative ways, in anti-militaristic ways, um, and manners and modes that are more compatible with our objectives as peace builders, I think. Thank you. Um... We could easily have gone on, but what I would love to do is, I have a feeling that they'll run on. Oh, no, there's Liz. I'm going to quickly, before Liz catches up, with, ask each of you to take half a minute or so, or a minute, to say the last thing that you would really want to share with the audience on this subject, in the hope that we get to meet again for longer. Um, I'm trying to think which way to start. Should we just go down this way and uh, let's see uh, Let me pick up that uh, last intervention, yeah. which was a rather good because it would be good to hear examples of, of what you have in mind. But I don't want to be misunderstood as uh, uh, in some way advocating only very crude or direct or, as it were, militaristic uh, responses. Um, I, I would think also very indirect ones. If we took Picasso's antithesis, Braque, and looked at some of his still life, for example, his trademark black fish, we would find that Braque's black fish, painted during the German occupation of Paris, were widely seen by the French as resistance fish and unrecognized by the Germans as having political signification. In other words, here is a very quiet, very, as it were, unmilitary response but a very powerful one for what I take it we would take to be good ends. All I'd like to make is, is an addition to what we've been talking about, and that is the power of video and YouTube. Mm. And I'm just really struck by how a three-minute beautifully made video of, say, those different... Um, um, musicians all over the world 
combined, linked up by mm. microphone, playing Stand By Me mm. at the same time. Mm. And it just whizzed around the world. And so I, I think that, that 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 medium is a new one to, um, and maybe could become the major one for us to link the efforts of people in different countries so they don't feel so alone. Mm. Thank you. Should we give the last word to Ruth? So you go first, Aviv. Yeah, Aviv, and then you'll have the last word. <laughs> no, I just want to finish with an invitation. Uh, I don't know, almost none of you, I don't know if you are academic or practitioners or artists, but, and I don't know if any of you have been to Lod before, but I just want to finish with an invitation. It's an amazing place with incredible people. And uh, whatever you're doing, whether it's uh, academic work or art or anything else, you are more than welcome to come and visit us because there is no way to to pass what's going on there uh, here in Oxford. So just come and visit us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you're an example, we're very happy to take up your invitation. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, we didn't. Um, I'd just like to say something very, very personal. I spent three years in Egypt, and after 31 years of peace between Israel and Egypt, uh, normalization of relations and cultural exchanges are certainly not uh, not there and um, one of the things that um, you know really touched me in all of that we're doing that we're trying to do in Lod is the fact that at least in that sense in the soft power sense we have a, an open door um, all open doors are sometimes a little bit less open sometimes a little bit more open but it's still an open door and it's definitely a path through which um, we think that people can get together and can express together and make their statement um, directly or indirectly, and we hope that uh, it will make an impact. Thank you.